Hello and welcome to Storytime with Dave. This is Dave. I'm your host. And I haven't done a podcast in like a month. Took a little hiatus for many reasons. I didn't put out an episode for a while and I was just looking. And it looks like the last time because I didn't even remember where I left off with you guys. I didn't even remember where I left off. So I had to look at what the last episode was. And at that time... About a month ago, a little less, three and a half weeks, I was telling you to stop cucking for Jeff Bezos, which I still stand by. So not, there have been changes in the last three and a half weeks to my psyche, my perspective, and that has not changed. Um, You should stop cucking for Jeff Bezos. You should stop cucking for Bill Gates. These are really awful people. They're really, really, really uh, no good people. And uh, so you should stop saying things like, well, Jeff Bezos worked hard for his $300 billion. He made a really great company. You're cucking, okay? And I I understand um, there were indoctrination methods used to get you to think this way, to think as though... There is no amount of money that becomes unethical, that anyone can have any amount of money so long as there is some kind of justification, justification such as them having a wildly powerful global corporation that makes it easier for you to get things. And so you'd be willing to allow that to justify their obscene, obscene amount of, of money and power. I mean, I didn't even think I mentioned this last time. Like, Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. This is a major news platform. This is a major news platform. Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. He owns it. So if there's something bad going on with Jeff Bezos, if there's a scandal going on, what do you think they're going to be talking about in the Washington Post? I wonder. Hmm. I'm guessing they would be fair and critical. I'm guessing they would give you the honest, honest truth when it comes to Jeff Bezos and Amazon. I'm guessing that despite the fact that he owns it, I'm, be- I'm, ge- I'm, I'm willing to bet a lot of money. Maybe I'm willing to bet the entire amount of Jeff Bezos' personal wealth that they would do a completely honest report and it would be not at all biased. And you certainly wouldn't see them trying to defend him. You certainly wouldn't see that. So I think people are wild conspiracy theorists thinking that, you know, a billionaire who has questionable business practices buying a major news outlet is somehow a conflict of interest. These people are so silly. These people are such silly conspiracy theorists. Oh, spooky, spooky. They're so silly, these people. I mean, any con- every conspiracy has been proven wrong in the history of probably not only the United States, but probably for the last five to 10 million billion years, every conspiracy has been proven wrong definitively by Snopes. Okay. Snopes, which is a fact-checking organization that consists of four people. Um, that they they have debunked every conspiracy theory uh, that's ever happened, even the ones that where the cons- 
the conspirators admitted uh, that they did something such as Project Northwoods, for example. Um, you know, I mean, uh, Project Paperclip. All of these crazy conspiracy theories that have been proven to have happened, but they've debunked. They've all been debunked, really, though. It, dude, it's crazy, man. I mean, it's like, how could this... It's one of the most effective things that you could possibly do. And it's been done in so many different ways. For so long. I mean, it's been done in so many different ways for so long. And what is a better way to silence opposition or to stop people in their tracks who are questioning things than to broadly classify it as something that allows you to dismiss it. You understand what I'm saying? If you are going to broadly classify anything you want as a conspiracy theory, then you don't even have to address what's being presented. You don't even have to address any of the evidence. You can just say this is a crazy conspiracy theory. That's all you have to say. And then they can use like a, a crazy theory to explain away a, uh, a conspiracy that raises a lot of questions. I mean, I've been saying this on, I've, I haven't done my own podcast in about a month, but I've done a couple other podcasts in that time, other people's podcasts. I did like Spice Rack, which is Jesse and Kate. That's their podcast. I just did Preston's podcast before and that we had a really good conversation, but I forget what his fucking, I don't even know what his podcast is called. I'm sorry. Um, but <clears throat> I mean, I'll plug it on the next episode when I, when I figure out what the name is. Um, one thing that I was thinking about, I mean, I've just been trying to grapple with this idea of conspiracy theory. How do you get someone to look past that? to become actually legitimately inquisitive. They will do everything in their power, whoever it is. I mean, the they can change. In the event of uh, certain scandals, it would be the CIA are the they. But it's like there's a lot of different. It's not like the CIA is behind everything. That's not true. But anything that they that where the suspicion falls upon them, then they would be inclined to create... A, some kind of tool or some kind of psychological weapon such as the idea of a conspiracy theory. And so they can completely brush away anything that comes up as a conspiracy theory. I'm going to relate this to other things because I know some people go like, I mean, I live with people like this. Like my dad, it he is um, 100% against anything that can be construed as a conspiracy theory, even if it's true. And this is, this is where it gets a little bit absurd because there are plenty of things that aren't conspiracy theories. They aren't theories. They aren't theoretical. It's based off things that happened or are happening unequivocally true. But those still get classified as conspiracy theories and brushed off. That's where it gets the most insane. When you have something that's going on, like... You know, I mean, I've been reading a lot of Chris Hedges. I think it's since the last time I've spoken to you, if I didn't tell you about Chris Hedges, I've now read four books by him in the last month. I'm going to read every book he's ever written. And I've been listening to other people as well, but he's been a, a major focus. He's one of the, I mean, he's written the, these four books that I've read so far. One of them I'm not done with yet, but they're all five stars and they're all the best books I've ever read. 
But you say something like um, the United States is a corporate state. It is not the democracy it uh, pretends to be. I said portends, and I think that that's a word. And I actually am going to check if that's a word. Is Because, I mean, obviously, pretends, I should have just said pretends to be. But instead, I said portends to be. But maybe I should have said purports to be. Is portends a word? Portends. Uh, to be a be a sign or warning that something uh, is likely to happen. Okay, so never mind. I used the word wrong, and I apologize for that, but I'm admitting it just right here. There you go. I was wrong about that word. So America says it's a democracy, and if you just look at the, the, the reality of the situation, it is a corporate state. It is purchased. There are, again, two parties. We have two uh, political parties that pretend to be different they but they are both uh complicit in the corporate kleptocracy of the united states of america i would highly recommend that you just please read any chris hedges book literally any chris hedges book the four ones that i uh the three that i've read so far are america the farewell tour empire of illusion death of the liberal class and the one that i'm reading right now is wages of rebellion I think, um, but again, it's like, it's not a conspiracy theory to say that there is a corporate hold over many, if not all of our political institutions. And so the idea of having a, that we have any sort of semblance of a legitimate democracy or a legitimate democratic republic is, is just wrong. I mean, if you look at something as simple as the barrier of entry. How hard is it to become a public figure? How many, how many uh, backs do you have to scratch to get into a position of power? And if you do it in a legitimate way, how then can you get your voice heard? How can you become someone who doesn't just get thrown under, under the rug and just completely ignored? And... You know, you get, I mean, you get certain things like, look, whether or not your political uh, affiliation aligns with them or not, I mean, I think um, we're talking about the squad, like I'll talk about the, the squad, which is like, whatever, it's like uh, Ilhan Omar and AOC and Rashida Tlaib or whatever her name is, and one other person I forget. Um, but there were the four of them. Now, it doesn't matter what I think about their politics or what you think about their politics. What the point that is important here is that they made waves by joining together. And they showed that in a unit of or in a, um, a collection of 435 people, which is the size of the House of Representatives, it only takes a few of you to have a legitimate impact as long as you because like you 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 multiply your power by finding like-minded people and uh, uniting your your causes together into one thing and then so they were able to make a lot of noise and I think that, that is good that they showed that you could do that I don't really I mean I think um, 
I just think AOC is dumb. You know, I mean, like she's probably a really nice person. I'm sure that if I w- if I knew her, we if we worked together or something, we'd be friendly. I would be friendly with her. But I just don't think she's smart. This is a problem. I mean, many people in our political system just aren't smart. And you don't have to be. And I'm 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 I I should say um, maybe smart's not the right word because I've realized recently, especially from reading a lot over the last two years and especially the last few months, that you don't have to be smart to be educated. You know what I'm saying? Like you have to be smart to be a neurosurgeon. You that requires a degree of like that requires a high IQ. I mean, there's just it's it's unfortunate in some ways that there is a component here which is like IQ or however you want to describe it, which is basically a person's ability to cognitively deal with extreme complexity. And there's just some people who have it and some people who don't have it. I mean, this is why you see, you'll encounter things and they're, they're literally, you can learn as much as you want about it and it won't click in a way that it clicks for other people. I am someone who always struggled with and academically, I always did well, and I never really had to try that hard until it came to more advanced mathematical things. Like um, once I was getting to the more advanced aspects of algebra, for example, I started to struggle a lot in math and like calculus, like never clicked with me. I could not understand it. I could put time into it, but I couldn't understand it. It's the same with physics. I always found that more difficult. Chemistry, I always found it more difficult than biology, which is also scientific. I always had an easier time with biology because there are less conceptual. I mean, it's more about like you can read about it, about what's going on. You need to learn what some words mean and you need to learn some systems, but it, it, it was always a lot more straightforward and less conceptual and abstract than there were aspects of biology that where I reached when uh, for example, there, if you're going to take something like anatomy and physiology, there are going to be systems that are more complex than others within your body. And then it does become more conceptual. Like I remember something that's way over my head is like, there are liver cells, there are cells in your liver and the way that they work is like really insane. And it's just hard to understand. So I remember that. But then you're like the digestive system in general, I found that really easy to learn about. So it, it depends. But what I'm saying is you need to be smart enough to do certain things because there's a level of complexity to them and your brain needs to operate in a way that you don't become overwhelmed by the complexity. And then there's like, there are aspects of certain jobs and that are constantly changing, but you can be dumb. I mean, not dumb, but you can be like, so let's say to be a neurosurgeon or like a, like a literal rocket scientist, you need to have an IQ of about 140, let's say, for example, the average IQ is about a hundred. And let's say, at least I think it's the, in the United States, it's about a hundred. And so let's say, um, you need 140. I'm just making that number up, but let's say you need 140 to be a neurosurgeon or something like that. Sure, that would disqualify a bunch of people from doing it. But in order to under like in order to know things, like especially when it comes to politics, there are the um, more abstract and and uh, 
the the more like conceptual things about politics is all made up it's just made up stuff and uh it's kind of like a lot of academic um areas will like they'll create their own language i mean this is what jargon is and they'll make things unnecessarily complicated you can think about it in a way that they have to justify the degree like if 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 you come out of college and you're still speaking in a way that people can understand well then if a dumb person can understand what you're saying then you must not be that smart i completely don't think that's true but i think that's the perception that a lot of people have and so they need to justify the two hundred thousand dollars that they spent on their education even if it's a hundred thousand dollars which if you're gonna live at school then the cheapest state schools are like 25 grand a year with room and room and board or whatever i mean i, I don't think it gets much cheaper than that maybe twenty thousand without a scholarship whatever even if you only spend fifty thousand dollars on your education you need to justify your investment. And so you do this by using academic speak. You do it by using this like coded language that allows you to speak to other people who are quote unquote experts or have expertise. And they don't actually, so the, the layman, the common person would not have any idea what you're talking about. Now, one of the reasons that I love Chris Hedges so much and why he's become my favorite author is because he is someone who is very, very smart. He is someone who has a deep understanding of all of these things, and yet he is someone who writes in such a way and speaks in a way that you can understand it, even if you're not very smart. You don't have to be college educated and know all the jargon and all the, the, the like words. And if there is a word, he'll always explain it. If there is a word like or a concept, he'll just explain it in the simplest way. And he'll say, if I refer to this, this is what I'm referring to. But you realize that Communication, and I've, I've said this before, there's like a degree of, um, to be truly intelligent, I think, and influential, there's a degree of uh, humbleness that you need to have. Because a humble intellectual would say, yes, I know all of these big words, and I know all of these complicated concepts, but I also know that in order to be an effective communicator, I need to speak in a way that people will understand. So there's like a degree, if you want to get to a point, point where you're actually intelligent and not just pretending to be because you know all of these words that you learned in college that you don't even really understand because a lot of them, if you just investigate, they, they make a lot less sense. So it's like to be an effective communicator, you have to be able to communicate your ideas to a lot of people or as many people as you can. There are certain things that would require you to speak in a way. I'm not saying that that doesn't exist, that there is completely no purpose for like the language of certain areas of expertise. In certain cases, it's required. There's no, there's no way around it. There are certain cases where you, you simply have to speak in this coded language because there's like, at that point, it's not even coded language. It's just the language to convey the ideas. It's like there is no simple way. And then, like, you know, if you want to, I was listening. I've been learning a lot about vitamin D, which you guys should look into because it's very interesting. It's been blowing my mind. And vitamin D turns out to be extremely important 
So in a way that I think a lot of people um, didn't realize until recently, although there are people who have been writing about it 80 years ago. There's one guy in particular, I forget his fucking name. It's like Dr. Price or something. He's this Canadian guy, and he figured out way early on the importance of vitamin D. But I was listening to a podcast with a guy, um, Dr. Joel Gould, G-O-U-L-D, and he's talking about vitamin D. And there's a way to break it down and, and to explain it to people in a way that makes a lot of sense. And that's, you can understand if you're not a doctor or a biologist or what have you. But then there would be certain times where he's like, okay, I have to go into, into like, I have to go into science mode or whatever right now, if you want me to explain, because they were like, well, how exactly does it work? And he's like, okay, I can explain how exactly it works, but it's going to get a little uh, complicated. Just but, you know, it's because that's there's no other choice. Like you can't you can't really explain it. You can explain it in a simple way that's a little more broad. But then as soon as people want to know specifics, then you're like, OK, we have to start talking about hormones and neurotransmitters and, uh, you know, all this different all this different stuff. That's that's just not going to be easy to explain. But then you have like an area like politics is not somewhere where that has to happen. It does not have to happen that way. And all you have to do is find people who are able to explain it in a very simple way. So you can have two people who are talking about the same thing. And one of them's talking about it in a way that's very easy to understand that most people can understand. That's kind of like written at, let's say like a ninth grade level or a 10th grade level. And then you have someone else who is talking about it in the most complicated, the most unnecessarily complex way possible. And again, why do they do this? I'm not exactly sure. And I think it depends on the person. I think for some of them, it's like an investment bias. They're like, well, I spent so much money and time on this degree and this education that I got. So I need to speak in a way that justifies it. I think part of it is a superiority thing. They're like, well, I want fewer people to understand me because that means I'm smarter. And that makes me one of the few. And so I think that that has to do with it. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's a lot of things. And I think some of it is like no one will know that. I think that some of it is you're a um, what would you call it? Like a grifter. I think some of it is like they they want to speak in a way that is purposely extremely complicated. So no one can decipher what they're saying, because if they were able to decipher what they're saying, it would they would realize that it meant nothing. And um, one of the greatest ironies of that to stay on the subject for a minute is, um, and I was, I realized this when I was doing uh, Jesse and Kate's podcast the other day is that what's funny about it is that these woke people and a lot of the times they're like academics, people like Angela Davis, for example. And I, I don't think it's all bad what they do but i i think that this is extremely ironic and i'll use angela davis as an example i saw a video of hers that someone was sharing and i watched the video and this was at, at the heart in the heart of the george floyd um fallout from his murder and uh i think a lot of people were sharing this Angela Davis video, and so I watched it. And you can't really understand anything she's saying if you haven't taken some gender studies classes or women's studies classes. She was using a lot of this language that's very, these are big words. 
And um, these are concepts that the average person does not understand. Most people do not understand. Even college educated people don't understand because they may have not been exposed to that in their schooling because they would have had to take in something in women's studies or gender studies or in, in that uh, in that area of the school. And so what I find funny about it and to put it in their in their own language is that they are speaking in the language of privilege. Someone like Angela Davis is speaking in the language of privilege because how privileged one must be to be able to go to college and get an education, to be able to speak in this special, fancy, made-up language. What a privilege that is. And you do make yourself one of the few in the country when you consider that most people in the country don't have an education, and most people who do have an education, a college education, were not exposed to that ideology in those classes, so they still wouldn't know what you're talking about. So you talk about, on the one hand, wanting to make a difference, and on the other hand, you speak in a language that so few people can understand that the likelihood that you're actually going to make a difference plummets. And maybe if you were able to like take your ego aside and actually just speak in a way that's way more simple or write in a way that's way more simple, you would actually find that you'd be a lot more effective, but they're just not willing to do that for whatever reason. And part of it is when someone becomes an academic, if everyone else around you is speaking in that way, you just might learn to speak that way. And it's like, there's just not much you can do. There's just not much you can do. I mean, it's like, it just becomes your language. It just becomes your default language. So you just no longer, I mean, talk about becoming disconnected and becoming like a, an academic elite and just becoming so cut off from actual society, which academics are so likely to do because they're so encased in this bubble within their institution, but then with also, also within their discipline within their institution that they just become so cut off from society. And then it's just evident in the way they speak. And you're like, no one knows what you're talking about. No one speaks like that. No one understands what you're saying. And yet you think that what you're doing is good and effective and it's just not, I mean, so, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's people who like Angela Davis who would say that that's like an unfair thing, but I've seen, I mean, I'm someone who likes Jordan Peterson, but I've seen that criticism against him and that he speaks in a way that is unnecessarily complex. And I completely agree with that criticism. That is a completely accurate criticism. And so many people do this. They speak in a way that is unnecessarily complex and there's a lot of reasons for it. And whatever reason it is, it's just like, it doesn't matter. You, you can speak more simply. You're making a decision to speak in a way that is unnecessarily complex and it just doesn't help. It doesn't help your cause. And, uh, you know, it just doesn't seem to me to make a lot of sense. Now, I'm not exactly sure how I got down this tangent, this side tangent. And I think I was talking about Chris Hedges, but I'm not exactly sure. So let's take it back to the idea of conspiracy theories, because I was I was I think that's how we got down this rabbit hole, because I was talking about the fact that we live in a corporate state and. Um, again, it's not a theory and you could just see it. It's just there. It's just out in the open and it's very obvious. But people will call you a crazy conspiracy theorist for saying that. It's the same way that if you were to point out that, um, you know, 
for example, you know, one thing is, is I've been learning a lot more and I'll, I'll tell you another reason why I like hedges and I like people like this that I think I mentioned this already. Or maybe I said this on Preston's podcast, but I know I've said it before. I like people who, 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 um, on the one hand, who go deep into something and then come out of it and they're able to criticize it. I like those people and I trust those people. And that is a broad generalization. I obviously don't trust all of those people and some of those people are full of shit, but it, I think it makes someone more credible if they're able to say, I felt this way for a long time and then I realized that I had been duped and this was all bullshit. And then they can offer you an interesting perspective on it. Perfect example of this is Malcolm X. And um, I think the guy's name was Elijah Muhammad. But there was this movement of like this Muslim movement. A lot of black activists and Black Panther people were becoming Muslims. And they were following this guy, Elijah Muhammad. And Malcolm X was one of the the you know, one of his disciples and he would always talk about him in like a really great light and how he looked up to him. And then one day, basically Malcolm put it all together and realized that this guy, Elijah Muhammad was full of shit and he was not abiding by the, uh, the, the Muslim doctrine. Like Malcolm X was actually a good Muslim. Like he followed the scripture and he actually, you know, I mean, he actually followed the rules and he realized this guy, Elijah Muhammad was just totally full of shit and he was a, um, what is the word that I'm thinking of? He was a, I don't know, there's a word for it, but he was a fraud. But there is a word for it. Um, and maybe I'll think of it later. But then Malcolm X publicly acknowledged the fact that he was wrong for following this guy. And, um, you know, and then he publicly started criticizing that movement. And uh, he kind of changed his whole perspective on uh, civil rights and, and the approach that he would take. And, you know, I mean, he got killed by those people, those, those Muslim, that Muslim group for, you know, and he knew he was going to die. He knew he was going to die. And, um, you know, he knew that was the most dangerous thing that he could do in his life right then was to break off with these people and to start publicly criticizing them. But he did it. And, um, you know, one thing that I learned, too, is that both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, I mean, Malcolm X is viewed as radical when you learn about him in school. You learn there was this great guy, Martin Luther King Jr., and he was just the best. And he had this really good speech called the I Have a Dream speech. But then there was this other guy, Malcolm X, and he was just, ooh, he was a radical. He was a radical. That's basically what I learned in school. I never even learned about James Baldwin. No one even mentioned James Baldwin. Meanwhile, James Baldwin's fucking awesome, but they don't even mention him. He's not even brought up. Because James Baldwin makes white people uncomfortable. I mean, this is essentially the reason why they landed on Martin Luther King Jr. Because they were able to take certain speeches that he made, like the Make a Dream speech, and manipulate it in a way that was just the most palatable for white people. So white people could go, okay, I, I agree with that. That's, that's reasonable. But if you, if you actually like, like look at Martin Luther King Jr., especially later in his life before the CIA killed him, or I think it was the FBI that killed him, but before they assassinated him, he was, I mean, you know, even like he was always more radical than the way that they portray him. He was always more radical than the way that they portray him. 
And you can see that um, towards the end of his life, he started to gravitate towards Malcolm X's ideology and what Malcolm X was saying. And then this is when he became too dangerous and they needed to get rid of him. But he was a very lonely boy at the end of his life. He was very lonely. I think, um, I forget what book I was reading, but that was in one of the books. Like people don't realize that and they held MLK Jr. up on this pedestal now. But by the end of his life, he was very lonely because a lot of people had walked down on him. A lot of people, he had seen that his movement and his, that, that, that the energy that he had created somewhat on his own and then with the help of the other leaders, all this energy was being misdirected. And he saw that they were taking his movement and that they were, they were distorting it. He knew that. And he would speak about it, too, in some of his last speeches. And um, that's the Malcolm X that I mean, that's the Martin Luther King Jr. that you wouldn't learn about for obvious reasons. I forget how we got here. Fuck. Hang on. Okay, well, anyway, I keep. You know, I always do that. I just go down a, a side side tangent and I don't remember what brought me here. I mean, I always do this. I should probably write an, an outline before I do podcasts, but whatever. So let's go back to the, the main kind of line of thought that we're following here, which is the idea of a broad stroke dismissal of anything that like like a broad like an ability to make people not critically think about anything. By just this broad dismissal using conspiracy theory as a justification for just completely brushing something off. Consider the fact that, just as an example, if someone says the world is controlled by lizard people and Jews, who some of which are lizards... That is a conspiracy theory, right? Wouldn't you call that a conspiracy theory? If someone says the moon was, was manufactured and built and is actually made of metal, that would be a conspiracy theory. And then if someone says that there were powerful forces, especially people who were in the Texas oil industry, but also people in the CIA, who wanted JFK dead, and so they conspired to have him murdered, assassinated, because he was threatening their business, and he was threatening their institution in the case of the CIA, and he was dangerous. That's also a conspiracy theory. How are those things all classified in the same way? This is something that I've been so fixated on lately. How can you classify something like, how could you link all three of those things as under the same idea, conspiracy theory, you know? It's like one of which is you're literally talking about shape-shifting lizards. And the other is you're saying, well, there is a basis, in fact, that powerful people wanted John F. Kennedy to die. John F. Kennedy to die. And he got assassinated. How could these two things be classified in the same way? Shape-shifting lizards and 
a very plausible conspiracy to take out a president who is dangerous to some of these powerful people. How can you classify these two things in the same way? Ask yourself that question. And I've gotten to the point where if something gets classified as a conspiracy theory, if something gets debunked, if a story comes out and then one hour later, they're already coming out with articles in Snopes or the New York Times or whatever about how the conspiracy theory has been debunked. And then the debunking of it is just completely insufficient. It makes me more likely to, to view that thing as being credible, even if it's not. But it makes me more likely to, and it should at least make you more likely to examine it for yourself because that's what they want you to do more than anything else is to just take their word for it. It's just to take their word for it. This is, and my dad is a perfect example. As I said, he is someone who unequivocally does not believe something if it's a conspiracy theory, even if it's not a theory. He will say, no, that's not true. You can tell him about, like I said, Project Northwoods was uh, something that the CIA wanted to go through with where they would manufacture a bunch of um, like, you know, terror attacks in the United States. And I forget even why. I don't know. I haven't looked into it in a long time, but it's it's a real thing. It was a real project. And JFK said no, he rejected it. So you could tell someone something like this and you could just Google it. I mean, you could check it out. Actually, I would stop. I would also say you should use DuckDuckGo because you'll see a lot more um, than on Google. Google is, Google's in on it. I mean, you know, like Google owns YouTube. YouTube censors everything. Um, I just watched, uh, and you should watch it too. It's called planet of the humans and it's the new michael moore documentary he executive produced it but he's not in it at all it's like a different guy and michael moore just allowed this guy to use his platform but it's about uh renewable energy it's about environmental movements and groups and activists and how they're all full of shit and it's a core it's been it's been corporatized and it's now um you know i mean look i i i don't know what the answer is as far as an economic system but capitalism seeps its way into everything it seeps into everything and it eventually corrupts things and i again like i don't know i'm not like obviously you know like 100 million people died from communism in the in the 1900s so i'm not saying that that's a viable alternative i'm not i don't know but you, it is undeniable that ca capitalism seeps its way into things and it and it hasn't an amazing propensity to corrupt things that on their face seem like really good things and really altruistic things. It has a way of, of managing to corrupt things in, in it's so reliable. It's so reliable that it, it just, it corrupts things so easily. And so that's what this documentary is about. I highly recommend you look into it, especially if you're someone who is someone who's an environmentalist and you, you like some of these groups like the Sierra Club. And you're about to find out your, your world's about to be shaken up a little bit. I mean, it's an amazing documentary. It's also a documentary that got banned on YouTube. And only after a few weeks and public pressure did YouTube put it back up. They had not provided uh, Michael Moore with an explanation. But uh, 
and he talked about it on, on a podcast that I was, I was listening to, but yeah. So again, I mean, it's the same idea. Like as soon as YouTube censors something, I go, huh, what, what is this about? Then I'd like to uh, look into it a little bit more, but you have people like my dad who no matter what is, if you just even say the word conspiracy, even excluding the theory part, he will not believe you. Okay. And what he does, and what I think a lot of people do, is that rather than looking into the thing itself or what the person is saying, they would rather look into the things that debunk it. So, so that's where they go first and only. You know what I'm saying? It's like rather than exploring whatever it is that the story is, rather than exploring that and then looking at the debunk, debunking and then determining for themselves what seems more credible and seems more likely, they would rather just look at the debunking. So then when you bring it up, they go, oh, no, that got debunked. And you're like, uh, how did it get debunked? Well, they, they said this. And you're like, but what did, what did they say about this? What did they say about this part? Oh, uh, well, I, I don't know. That's, that's nonsense anyway. Did they... Okay, it's not. Uh, did they mention it in that uh, quote unquote debunking article? Did they did they mention this part? Oh, what about this part? Did they mention that? Oh, well, no, but it's it's come on. It's all nonsense It is so frustrating to me. It is extremely frustrating to me that people. But I also I can't get that frustrated because because it's like like when it over so many years. And they use these, they use these uh, psychological mechanisms to their advantage, things like cognitive dissonance, and they get people and they make it a team game and they get people to just, to just go against everything that says like, like just the natural human curiosity and inquisitiveness and things that make you want to go, that make you want to question and that's like a whole, that's like a, just like a principle of like free speech and free thought. And I don't know, the aspects that have led to so many great revelations are when you start questioning things and they, they, and by doing this, they get you to just stop, stop you in your tracks. You won't question it, but they do it for so long and for so many things that you're just conditioned to never, to never ask any further questions. You go, Oh, what, what did the New York times say? Okay. Oh, the New York times said that. Okay. Well, if the New York times said it, then it must be true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The New York times, the same paper that, that, that supported the, uh, the same paper that like supports the, the, the Iraq war and the same people writing for it to this day, you know, they, they, um, they still have their job and they're still credible and no one asks any questions. I mean, how ridiculous is it? Like my parents claim that they, they look at both sides. My parents claim that they look at both sides because they read these, um, quote unquote, reformed conservatives, right? So you have these conservatives who used to be Republicans until Donald Trump got elected. And now they've seen the light. And they're the never Trumpers, right? Again, this is irrelevant. Whether or not you like Trump, it is irrelevant to, to what the point I'm trying to make. 
they they just do a 180 and then people like my parents read them and they go no i'm actually very informed because i read from both sides of it i read from both sides and you're like dude how is it that these people could have been so wrong about everything for 30 years 40 years people like billy crystal and like you know these old school republicans these people who who completely supported the war in iraq they completely support whenever we invade any country to spread democracy, you know, because that's what we're always trying to do, right? We're always trying to spread democracy. That's all we're trying to do. We're the good guys, you know, and sometimes when you when you want to spread democracy, a few hundred thousand Iraqi civilians have to die. You know, maybe some innocent uh, Afghanis need to die. Well, this is all for the good of man and for the spreading of democracy. But... When things happen like in Iran where a socialist that we don't like gets democratically elected and he wants to let the state control the, the oil, when he wants to let the state control the oil industry, then we go, no, 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 no. That's bad democracy. That's not the democracy that we like. And so we have that person removed and we put in an autocrat. That's what we do. We go, we spread democracy unless the democracy chooses someone that we don't like. And then we go, oops, no, you fucked up with your democracy. That's not the right democracy you did. Sure, you voted on it and you all came to a consensus that this is the leadership that you want, but that wasn't the right leadership. So we're actually going to remove that person. Sometimes violently, we're going to have that person removed and we're going to give you the person that we wanted that you were supposed to choose. You were supposed to choose this person when you did your little democracy thing that, that we spread there. You were supposed to choose this person, but you chose the wrong person. So we're going to fix it for you. We're going to just fix it for you. And so these are the same Republicans who were wrong about everything for decades. But now because they hate Trump, they are they have a new they have they have there's a rebirth, a second wind to their careers and their legacy. And it's just such bullshit, dude. It's just ridiculous. I mean, it's like. But again, you got people like my parents and they're like. No, but they are Republicans. It's like, no, dude, that is a myth. Because, oh my gosh, they, they are, I mean, when it comes to the corporate interests, they always agree. The Democrats and the Republicans agree. So it's like, that's whenever they agree. It just happens to benefit large corporations. I mean, not all the time, but it's just such a theme. It just happens to benefit, you know, like why would a liberal and one of the tenets of liberalism is supposed to be pacifism. It's supposed to be, it's supposed to be avoiding military action at all costs, avoid violence at all costs, peaceful protests, not violent protests. It's supposed to be no useless wars, like wars for literally no reason. That, that in a lot of ways get manufactured. They are complicit in the manufacturing of the, the issue, bringing the issue to a boiling point where it's as though the only option is to start a war. So, you know, there are all of these people who call themselves liberals and it was in the early 2000s and then they are, 
they're they're war hawks. They're just liberal war hawks. So they're not really liberal. They're democratic, right? They're blue. They're blue voters, but they become just as war hawkish as the Republicans. The only difference is that the language is a little different. So the Republicans go, these Muslims need to pay. They killed our people on 9-11. And then the, the blue people, the blue ones go, well, <laughs> you know, they go, well, you know, we don't want to have to do it, but it seems as though there's no other choice. It's like, uh, yeah, there's obviously another choice. We just mean to not have a war. They don't even, they don't even like posit that as an option. They don't even like mention that. It's ridiculous. I mean, I'm telling you, it is so absurd. You just can't believe it. Now, there's two more directions I want to go in this little journey that we're taking here and trying to catch you up on all the stuff that I've been learning in the last month, but really like a few months, is to um, link up this idea of just a broad dismissal of anything you don't like using this um, classification as a conspiracy theory. It is the same thing that people are doing with racism. It's the same thing people do with sexism. And it's the same thing people do with anti-Semitism or whatever ism you want. Now, so, this isn't to say that those things don't exist. But this is to say that they're able to manipulate those things to fit into like any definition that they want. And so then they can classify anything as racism or they can classify anything as anti-Semitism in a way like the, the way that they use it is to just brush off any criticism that they don't like. I've talked about this many times before. The, the example that I usually use is the way that women say, um, you know, like the soccer team. It was like the women's soccer team. They're like, why is the women's soccer team making less money? It's because of sexism. And it's like, no, it's not. If it is because of sexism, it's partially because of sexism. It might be as much as 20% about sexism. I'd give you that. Maybe even 25% about sexism, but to act like it's straight sexism is not true. And then if you were to criticize that, they can go, you're a sexist. You see, they use these labels to silence dissent. And the, I mean, the way the Jews use it with anti-Semitism, it's even more egregious because they try to expand, ever expanding the definition of anti-Semitism to the extent that even criticizing Israel is anti-Semitism. Even criticizing the idea of Zionism is anti-Semitism. Even bringing up the the you know uh, the the ridiculous human rights abuses that happen in Israeli-occupied Palestinian territories, you know, like Gaza and the West Bank. Anything horrible that happens to those people is somehow construed as anti-Semitism. If you bring up, hey, wait a second. Israel's doing some really fucked up shit to these people. You know, I bought into that stuff for so long. I was like pro-Israel. I was like, it's all propaganda. It's ridiculous. I was I was literally the opposite of right. You know, like I was I was wrong, but what I believe was the opposite of reality. I thought that Hamas was the propaganda wing and it really wasn't that bad and they're blowing every everything out of proportion. What I didn't realize is that not only is it bad, it's worse than it looks from the outside and the propaganda wing is the are the Israelis. And so what I'm saying right now people would say is anti-semitic and isn't that funny because they wouldn't at all have to address the human rights abuses or what's going on in in 
with the Palestinians. They don't even have to address that at all. All they have to do is go, that's anti-Semitism. That's what led to the Holocaust. What you're saying right now led to the Holocaust. And you go, wait a sec, are you even going to say anything about what I just brought, the point I just brought? That point, it's irrelevant. What you're saying is, is anti-Semitism is going to lead to death and suffering. And you're like, wait, you mean like the death and suffering that's happening to the Palestinian people? Stop saying that. That's anti-Semitism. You're being anti-Semitic. You know what I mean? It's like, that is so easy. It's so easy. And whenever you're dealing with something that's very complicated, that has a lot of moving parts, a lot of different factors, if someone is going to step up and say, I know what this is, it's this one thing. It's this one thing. This extremely complicated mess of things that you're looking at, this whole situation that that it seems like really, really hard to resolve in any meaningful way. I'm going to tell you right now what it is. It's this one thing. And you're like, okay, that can't be. That can't be. That's when you should start going. That's when you should start asking more questions about the thing. When people go, this is what it is. Because it's usually, it's usually an illusion. It's usually based on an illusion. And you start to peel back the layers. And sometimes it's very, very, uh, sometimes there's only one layer. You know, sometimes you, 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 the perception is that you might have to go very deep on some of these things to get any meaningful information or to start to reveal what is something closer to the truth. I don't like to claim to know the truth about certain things. I just like to try to get to a point where I feel as though I'm closer to the truth than I was before, whether it's like capital T truth. You know what I'm saying? Or like just what's really, what's really good, what's really happening. I just try to get a little closer. And uh, I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> it seems to me and based off my experience that the easiest thing that you can do is to read and to find people, you can find different people who are writing about different things and read what they're saying and just see what makes more sense to you and what seems to be adding up more. I mean, this is how you discover authors that you really fuck with. And, uh, you know, it only takes you reading like sometimes maybe, dude, I'm telling you, like, I literally read like, 50 pages, not even, I read like the first 20 pages of America, the farewell tour by Chris Hedges. And I was like, Oh my God, this guy's my favorite author. You know, I knew that in like 20 pages at this point, I've read like over a thousand pages of his work. I'm like, it's only gotten better, but this is what you got to do. And, and even in one of Hedges books, he talks about, and this is really sad. This is one of the saddest I mean, it's not, it's really not one of the saddest. I didn't want one of the reasons why I haven't made a podcast in, in as long as I have is that some of what I've been finding that is actually true, that is, that is not this complete illusion and this, this theater is very disturbing. Some of the stuff that you find that's true and some of it, they only, they only barely bring up as a, an issue. I mean, there's a chapter in America, the farewell tour where he talks about, um, 
you know, things like the raising suicide rate in the United States of America, things like um, the gambling epidemic in America and uh, the heroin epidemic. And they only barely, they just mention it. They, they, when you see, when you hear about it on the news, they're usually going, well, this is a, this is a point that voters are talking about this heroin epidemic, but they don't even talk about what's, what's going on with it. And so when you start to actually learn about these things and the reality of these things, especially on the ground itself, when you got a guy like Hedges, who's an investigative journalist, who actually goes to places like, uh, you know, the, 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 what is it called? The Rust Belt? Isn't that what it's called? But, you know, places like the Midwest, where there's a lot of uh, places like Scranton, Pennsylvania, which is literally like a ghost town, places like Detroit. And he goes there and he interviews these people and he actually is able to make it a lot realer by using people's personal experiences and explaining to you how this is having an impact on people's lives. And then you go, oh my God, this is really dark stuff. This is fucked up and is depressing. And everything is worse than it appears to be. That's why I have been holding off mostly because I've just been looking for some hope, but there's none. I mean, there's like a little bit and maybe we can get into that Maybe on this episode, but maybe in future episodes. I don't know if I'll go too much longer here. We're already about an hour. But it's really bad, man. And it's really sad. And it's depressing. And I've been trying to write jokes about it, too. And I'm like, I am someone who will joke about anything. Until I get... This has completely been changing my perspective on things. And I'm finding it harder to make it funny. Because it's like there's nothing funny about it. It's just very sad. It's very sad. It's very depressing. And I just wish more people were aware of it, but I also don't want to bum people out. I don't want to completely bum you out because it's been giving me anxiety that I don't usually have. I'm someone who's usually very free from anxiety. I, uh, I am very, uh, I don't know. I've always had a good way of like, you know, your internal monologue. I forget what. You know, if I've been reading a little bit of Freud recently and he would call it like, I forget what he calls it. I think he either calls it the ego or the super ego or the id. They're like these three things like I don't fucking know, dude, it's over my head, too. So I don't know. But one of those things is like that voice in your head. That's like it's like when you're doing drugs, it's like if you've ever done mushrooms. I remember the last time I did mushrooms. Um. I took more than I ever had, which still wasn't a lot. I never, I've never tripped hard, but I remember there was a, there was a feeling of intensity that I had never felt in my life. And this, it probably only lasted about twenty minutes, but it feels longer when you're in it. And I just remember telling myself there was a voice in my head that was like an overriding voice because there was a lower voice. There was this lower thought that was like, this is very intense. This is very intense. This is not good. Something's happening. This is not good. Something's happening. I'm freaking out. But then there was an, a, 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 there was like a God voice. You can describe it in that way. There was like this God voice that was above that voice that was saying, this is only going to last for 20 minutes, dude. You'll be fine. It's a little intense. But, but the, you know, the, the, the higher voice, which I don't, I don't know what I'd call it, was like, Oh yeah, it's intense. Well, you just ate shrooms. Like, what'd you think? It wasn't going to be intense, you know? And so that's very calming. And I've always had like a good calming presence in my mind, um, which has made it, which has made my life, you know, especially 
since I was in my early 20s, very anxiety free. And I, I don't get anxious very much. But this stuff has been making me very anxious. And I'm, I'm susceptible to it. And I, I, you know, I've been trying to figure out how to deal with it because writing about it has been helping and probably podcasting about it will help too. But I'm just giving you a, this, you know, a disclaimer here that it's fucking a bummer. And, uh, it just, it's really, it's pretty dark stuff. And, uh, I don't know. I mean, if you didn't want to look into it, I wouldn't blame you. If you actually wanted to stay completely ignorant to this stuff, I would totally understand that. I would completely understand that. And I wouldn't blame you. There's a lot of reasons why you might not want to go there because there's no turning back on it. And once you start to see, I mean, um, this is one thing that I've been talking about. And I think I talked about it on all the podcasts I was on in the past month, but not on my own yet. But I've realized that there is a major distinction in worldview. Um, and it's, it's a broad distinction, but it will lead you in either one direction or another in many cases. And the distinction is, do you view all of this politics and the cultural battles that take place, do you view it as theater and, um, you know, I mean, basically, to, to put it broadly, do you view it as theater and entertainment in a way? Or do you take it at face value? And one thing that I have come around on is that it's, in my view, it is theater. And it's not real. It's theater. It does what it is intended to do, which is to divert your attention by any means necessary from anything that is real and substantive it diverts you into things that are meaningless and useless. And once you realize that, you start to see it all over the place. And I will acknowledge this, that in the same way that I feel that if someone is, you know, there's like these books that are anti-racist, like the book White Fragility, which is garbage, and the book like How to Be an Anti-Racist, which I don't know I'm not sure, but I assume that it's garbage. I only know for certain that the book White Fragility is garbage. Ironically, it is written by a white person, a white woman. Um, but I know from, from, I know that it is very easy to start seeing something everywhere once you have decided that you'll see it everywhere. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you are into the, all this anti-racist stuff, you decide that you're going to see racism wherever it is. And this is inevitably going to lead you into a situation where you are seeing racism where it is not. You know, you are just convinced that it's racism. But and then this would go back to things like microaggressions where, sure, something might be a microaggression and there might be some subconscious bias at work. And then other times you might just be thinking that that's the situation. You might be completely wrong about it. And so I acknowledge that there is that own bias within me when it comes to what I'm telling you about the idea of political theater and the idea of entertainment. And so I will admit that there are probably times that I think that I'm seeing it where I'm not really seeing it. But I am telling you this. There is so much of it 
that you can't brush it away. And that once you start seeing it, it is very pervasive, especially in mainstream media. And it's a, it's, it's just, I mean, it's really terrible. I mean, I've, I know for a fact, I've told you about the book hate Inc, but stuff like that. And you start to see it everywhere. Let's take this for example. And this is an example that everyone will understand. I've even gotten people who, who think that this is whatever, if it's conspiracy theory, nonsense or whatever, people who disagree with this, I have gotten people to acknowledge this at least. And I think anyone will be willing to acknowledge this. If you look at the coverage of the Super Bowl, the, the NFL Super Bowl, you know, the football championship, if you look at the coverage of that and you compare it to the coverage of the election, you will see you, it, it is uncanny. It is remarkable, the similarities between the way that they cover the Super Bowl and the way that they cover the election. And that should be disturbing to you because it should be disturbing to all of us because why would they do that? It's, it's like, and obviously the obvious answer is because they need you to watch. They need you to tune in. They need you to keep watching. There's always breaking news and it's always after these messages and the messages, the advertisements are always pharmaceutical advertisements which we can get into another time, but it's always breaking news after these messages, breaking news after these messages. You start to notice these patterns and you already know that. You know, I know you know that. I know you know that. I know you know that the pharmaceutical industry has a big influence on the media. But once you really start to look at it, you realize, Jesus Christ, every other commercial that I see is a pharmaceutical, is some kind of drug. Every other commercial is some kind of drug. And then you realize the extent to which it's a problem. And then you start to notice like, wait a second, everything is breaking news. Everything is breaking news. And it's always after these messages. Why? Obvious. You know why. I know why. Let's start seeing it for what it is. I mean, you just start to pay a little bit more attention and you, you notice the severity of the pattern. Like, Everyone knows that they're going to say things like breaking news after these messages to get you to keep watching. When you realize the extent to which they are engaging in that behavior, it is astounding. It will blow you away. You start paying more attention because it's, uh, it's numbing. They numb us in a lot of ways. It becomes numbing. And so you're not going to identify these things that would otherwise be obvious and it's especially interesting when you hear a perspective of someone who's foreign, who is not from the United States, and they, they talk about their experience watching news in the United States and watching uh, television in general in the United States. And when you hear people, I mean, I listen to some podcasts where people will talk about that, and I think that's an interesting insight, where people are always very, uh, they're, they're, they're amazed at, I guess, the corporate influence over media and the degree to which it is far more severe than anything that they see in their own countries. I mean, I guess it depends what country you're coming from, but yeah, man, it's fucking wild, dude. <clears throat> so you should, I mean, you know, like I, I've been telling you to read, I mean, 
uh, one of the things I think I was about to say this, that's, that's pretty disturbing about one of the Hedges books is he talks about the illiteracy in the United States is, is, uh, it's way, it's way, it's very high. Um, there are, and it's hard to tell, but let's just say there are tens of millions of people, over 10 million people who are either completely illiterate, meaning they can't read at all, or who are functionally illiterate, meaning they can maybe read a menu, but maybe barely even. They can read street signs, but that's about it. So they are functionally illiterate. For all intents and purposes, they are illiterate. It's one of the reasons why you always see pictures on menus, you know, because it's like at fast food places and stuff. There's always pictures. And at these chain restaurants, there's always pictures and stuff in the menu. Anyway, and I, I don't think that's all because of illiteracy. I mean, I, I think that that's probably a good idea to put pictures in. But it's also because some people can't read the fucking menu. But the other thing is, and this is the more disturbing part, is that there are people who are willingly illiterate, who have the ability to read, and they choose not to. And this is so many people. This is so many people who would rather consume any form of media, and now I'm using the word media in a very broad sense. I just mean something that you would, some kind of, whether it's entertainment or educational, um, whether it's a book, YouTube, TV, whatever the case may be, people at this point would prefer anything but a book. And so the amount of people who actually read, it's so small. And, um, you know, I was talking to Nicole about this because her and I both read a lot. And she was like, you know, it makes me, she was saying like, it makes me really like feel really good that we're a part of like a small group, uh, like kind of an exclusive group of people that, that read, but like, it doesn't make me feel good. I mean, we all like, she, she agreed too that like, that just makes me feel bad. That doesn't make me feel good that like no one reads that doesn't make me feel good. That makes me feel bad. I don't feel like special, you know, that I'm someone that reads. I don't feel better than people that I'm someone that reads. And this goes back to my point from earlier. Like once you realize the, the extent to which you can learn from reading and like how much knowledge there is within a book, a single book, you realize that you can be very well educated completely by yourself without spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on a college education and without needing to have a high IQ. All you need to have is an attention span that is more than that of a goldfish or the average American consumer who needs constant flashing lights and screens and they need this. They need this at all times. I mean, you need it. You're one of these people and I'm one of these people in a lot of ways. And all we need to do is focus. You don't need to be smart to read any, I shouldn't say that. You don't need to be smart to read a book that can profoundly change your life and teach you so much. Because while some of these books are hard to read, I'm not going to tell you to go read a Nietzsche book. And I'm not going to tell you to go read uh, Dickens. I'm not telling you to do that. But you can read people who are very easy to read. People like I've been telling you to read Matt, he I mean, uh, Chris Hedges, I keep telling you to read Chris Hedges. He's easy to read. Matt Taibbi, I keep telling you to read him. 
Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell is like just interesting stuff and patterns. Like Malcolm Gladwell isn't really political. But again, it's like very interesting. I mean, it's like it is a completely different type of book than, but it's nonfiction. It's very interesting. There's that book Sapiens. Very interesting stuff. Very easy to read. So all it takes is your focus. Are you able to sit there and focus? Listen to an audiobook. It's fine either way. Read the book physical or listen to the audiobook. It's the same, dude. I'm telling you. It's the same. You will absorb just as much information either way. But all you need to do is have the ability to focus on this one thing for a few hours at a time or maybe even just a few minutes at a time. You could take as long as you want to read a book, but it is so much more valuable. You will get so much more out of reading someone's book than watching them on a TV show or something. You don't even understand. They can't even, I mean, look, if someone, let's say someone spends two or three years writing a book, they can't remember everything and that's in that book. If the book's 500 pages or, or, or even 200 pages, they can't remember everything that's in the book, you know? So they'll go on TV and they'll be getting interviewed about it. And they're not going to mention a bunch of the stuff that's in the book. Not to mention sometimes it's stuff that's in the book that, you know, there's parts of, uh, in the Hedges books, America, the Farewell Tour, and Empire of Illusion. He has one chapter in each of those books that's about porn, the porn industry, and, you know, like the um, prevalence of torture in porn and the fucked up nature of the porn industry that has me looking at the porn industry in a completely different way. And it's very disturbing. And it's graphic, these two chapters are graphic and I had never heard him speak about it. I'd watched plenty of YouTube interviews with Chris Edges. I had never heard him speak about it because he couldn't speak about it. He would not be able to. He couldn't talk about that on, on a news show. He couldn't possibly do that. It is graphic and it is disturbing. And if you decide to read either of those books, when you get to that chapter, I'm telling you, you're going to be weirded out. And you're going to be disturbed and you're not going to want to continue reading it. But you really should because you got to understand the point that's being made. The point that's being made with those chapters and with a lot of the chapters, with a lot of the books, is the fact that we are at a... Our society is very unhealthy. You could think of it as diseased. The American society is diseased in a lot of ways. And it, it reveals itself... The symptoms are everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. There are symptoms all over the place and you see it. Once you start to put two and two together, you realize that these things are linked. And that's one of the reasons why I'm reading Freud right now. It's because Freud, I'm reading this book called uh, Civilization and its Discontents. But it's kind of about this idea like the psychological and psychoanalytical effect that a society has on the individuals within the society. And if the society is crumbling or if the society is just, is just deeply disturbed and the fact that like the American society is disturbed in the sense that, and this is ob this part is obvious. I mean, there are parts that you might disagree with, but at least in this sense, everything is a commodity. Everything is something that can be bought or sold and everything is about making money. And then you see the way that manifests itself and some of the ways that it manifests itself is disturbing. 
And that much is undeniable. And when you start to read about, I'm dude, I'm just telling you, like, you can't, I, you know, the person, I think the person who introduced me to Chris Hedges is Chris Park. Shout out to Chris Park. And I don't know if Chris Park's ever read any of uh, Chris Hedges' books. But I said to Chris Park, I was like, dude, you did you read this book? And he's like, no, but I've seen Chris give his talks on the book. But that's what I'm saying. You don't even know, bro. Like, you don't even know. There is so much more within the books. And this goes for anything. There's so much more within the books. So I just like, please want you to please read if there's one thing I could get you to do. I don't even care if you're reading the wrong shit. I mean, you know, and that's obviously very subjective. What's the right shit or the wrong shit? I don't even care if you read White Fragility. Just read something. Make it a habit. Like become a reader because it's not good. It's not good when we're, we, it, it's like that's one way to break the illusion is through books because they're certainly not going to put anything on television that's going to help break the illusion. And that's what I mean by the illusion. Like, is it theater? Once you see it for what it is, it breaks this, it shatters this illusion that you've been living within this illusion. You realize all at once, or maybe over a specific period of time, you realize, oh my God, this is all fake. It is all nonsense. It is all a lie. And once you start to realize this, it is, it'll give you anxiety, but it's better. And I, was, I wrote an essay about this the other day. It is way better to willingly and voluntarily break the illusion yourself than to have it broken for you. You know what I'm saying? Like the harsh way that any illusion will break itself. It's like if you are making a lot of money, but you aren't saving any, but you're like, I, it's fine. So you're living in this illusion where you're like, it's fine. I'm going to be doing great. I'm just going to end up making more money. I'm doing great. I don't have to save, you know, I don't have to save any money. I'm making like, like 300 grand a year right now. I'm fucking killing it. You know, let's say if you were one of those like subprime mortgage people before the, uh, the crash of the market in 2008. Let's say you were making a killing and you were like bawling the fuck out and you were just buying a bunch of cocaine and hookers and you bought a fucking yacht and all this shit. And you're like, dude, I'm killing it right now. This is like, um, I'm young, I'm crushing, I'm gonna make so much money in my life. I don't need to be worrying about saving. And then all of a sudden the market crashes, you lose your job and now you're in debt. You don't even have any money and you're in debt. You didn't save any. This is your illusion being shattered. That is the form in which it, it presents itself. But it can present itself in so many forms because there's so many underlying issues right now that people refuse to acknowledge. They refuse to look at. They refuse to acknowledge them. And so if you willingly break the illusion yourself, if you voluntarily do it, it's better, at least, and it will give you anxiety, and it will make you maybe more cynical, maybe more pessimistic. That might happen. But 
you'll also come around a little bit. I'm starting to come around a little bit and it's getting a little easier to realize where I'm at and what's good, what's going on and not be so anxiety ridden by it and not allowing it to have that effect on me because again, these are things that are out of my control. The only thing I can do is try to get, you know, try to do things like this podcast and get you to acknowledge or to realize what's going on and maybe get you to read some stuff or whatever. I don't know. I mean, you don't have to do anything that I say, but I would at least like to get you to be curious about some of these things. And because I don't know, man, I mean, I don't know what else, like, I I don't know. I'm trying to write more. I'm trying to get better at writing. These are things that I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to learn more. But as far as there's not a whole lot I can do about the mainstream media. So I try not to get so caught up in it and get so frustrated by it. But I'm telling you, like, you don't want to, I mean, you know, if that, if reality shatters that illusion for you, it's going to be a lot worse. And that's the kind of thing that will drive you into depression. It'll drive you into drug use, alcohol abuse, and potentially suicide. That's what happens if there is, you know, if all of a sudden reality shatters the complete lie that you've been living, that you, you, in a lot of ways, people always know they're living a lie and people always know it's bullshit, but they bury that. They bury that. They push it as deep down as possible. And so they're able to live in complete ignorance of it. But when reality sets in and sometimes you can get through your entire life living in the illusion and you can die before the illusion is broken. That's great. And I highly recommend you try to do that, but there's no guarantee that you can make that that will happen. That's why doing it voluntarily is important. So you want to, I don't know, that's just the way I feel about it. You can't guarantee. Ideally, if I can go back and unlearn all of the stuff that I've learned and go back to thinking that what really matters is debating uh, who's going to have better policies, Joe Biden or Donald Trump or... uh, You know, um, well, there's some important primaries coming up. And uh, I think that these could be really, you know, it's like. I wish I can go back to thinking that that's the stuff that's really important or that the stuff that's really important are like, you know, did you hear like uh, whatever? I don't know. But you know what I'm saying? Like, I wish I could go back to thinking that what they're talking about on CNN is actually important. I would like to go back to that. Because it was a simpler time. It was a simpler time. I would like to be able to go back to that and to just live my entire life thinking that's actually what mattered. But that had its own drawbacks and that had its own anxiety attached to it. Because again, they profit off of us being afraid and off of us hating one another. So I don't even know that that's necessarily a better uh, alternative. It's just that now I've put myself in a position where there are far fewer people who I can have these conversations with and, and, you know, I've just made myself more of a minority in the sense of the things that I think, but that doesn't make them wrong. In fact, as history would, would, uh, would corroborate, am I using that word correctly? Um, it's oftentimes that what ends up being true at the end of the day were things that not many people believed at all at the time. 
And this isn't to say, again, like I'm never trying to say that I'm right and that you're wrong. I'm just trying to say that with everything that I've seen, this is where it's left me. And it always, as I absorb new things and new information, it leaves me in a slightly different position, sometimes in a dramatically different position. But I'm trying to be transparent about it. And I'm telling you that as someone who's been so many places ideologically, as someone who has been a very woke boy in my early 20s and very into um, communism, really, and very into like fake, that fake kind of compassion about like talking the talk, but doing nothing more than that and looking at the wrong issues. But I went all the way from super woke to like pretty conservative to like liking Ben Shapiro and like Candace Owens to like now where I'm at. And it's like, I don't, I'm in a completely different place, but I'm realizing that it's a synergy of all of these different aspects that I wasn't completely wrong when I was a woke boy. And I wasn't completely wrong when I liked communism and I wasn't completely wrong when I was a little more conservative. It's that there were, there were some, some aspects of all of those ideologies that contribute to whatever I think now, which I don't think I could put an ism to it, you know, like I don't, I, or an Aryan, like, I don't think I'm a libertarian. I also don't think I'm a Marxist. I also don't think I'm a feminist. I also don't think I'm a conservative. I also don't think I'm a whatever. I don't, you know, I don't think I'm a fascist. I don't think any of these things, but I just have like, it, again, it's like, it's, it's just, I couldn't describe it in a way that that's very simplified like that. But that's the only reason why I bring that up is because I'm saying like, I've been all over the place. I've seen those arguments. I understand that. And I've just seen other arguments that I found more compelling. And I think that there is an apprehension. People don't want to see the other side's argument because maybe they're afraid to be wrong think that could have something to do with it or they're just able to dismiss it using one of these tactics that I mentioned earlier. It's a crazy conspiracy theory. It's anti-Semitism. It's sexism. It's racism. Whatever it is, they're either able to completely brush it off and absolve themselves of the necessity to actually be inquisitive and actually investigate and actually look at both sides of an issue or they're afraid that they might be wrong. And maybe there's other aspects that I'm missing, but I don't, I can't think of any others. Can you? I don't know. Maybe you can. You know what? Okay, so we're about an hour and a half in here. And um, I'm glad that that went as long as it did because I don't like it to be just nonsense trying to fill time and trying to get it arbitrarily to an hour or arbitrarily to an hour and a half or whatever. That's why, I mean, it's like one episode, one week, I'll make it as 20 minutes and the next week it's 40 minutes and the next week it's 35 minutes and the next week it's an hour and 10 minutes. I don't care. I just say what I got to say. It just so happens that because I haven't done a podcast in a month, I had a lot to say and there's a lot more to say. And um, again, I don't want to bum you out. And so maybe we'll see. It's like, I'll start to put like, a disclaimer on something if it's going to really be a fucking drag. But, you know, I'm sorry this wasn't at all funny. I know it wasn't at all funny. Maybe there was like one point that it was funny. But 
that wasn't the point, you know, and all my, when I'm trying to be funny, they're not even as good, to be honest with you. That's like every review I've gotten is like, I like when you're serious more than when you're trying to be funny, which it's like, fine, then you're right. I think so too, because I actually also enjoy them more when I'm not trying to be funny because it's like, it just seems forced. It's like, I'll be funny on stage, but on here, it's like, if it happens to be funny, it happens to be funny, but it's not really such a goal. But I just wanted to tell you what's been going on in my head. There's so much floating around up there. I don't know what to make of all of it. I'm just trying to figure shit out. It's I'm trying to read as much as I can. You got to do you. I mean, you don't got to do anything. You do whatever you want. But I'm telling you that you will not regret it. If you start to read, you won't regret it. That's my biggest. That is my biggest recommendation to any of you. Please do that because like everyone who listens to this podcast probably can read or at least many of you can. I'm sorry if I made a false assumption and you can't read. I apologize. Most of you can read, but you don't. I know this is true because I didn't read until I was like 23 or something or 24. I would just pretend to read or I would read, um, or I would read um, spark notes if I had to read a book for school. Or I would read articles and act like that was enough. It is not enough to read an article. An article has nothing compared to a book. And you know what? The only articles that have anything that slightly resemble the amount of information that can be gathered from a book are these huge articles that are like 10,000 words, 15,000 words. But those are the ones that no one reads. Because they start scrolling. They see the little scroll bar on the side and they see that it's a really tiny scroll bar and they go, oh my gosh, this must be 20 pages. I'm not reading this. And so they don't read it. That's the only one that would have anything of value. You, you'll read like a one-page Snopes article or a, or a two-page New York Times article. That is nothing, man. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, it's like I'm not saying it's bad necessarily. It depends. It might be. It might actually be bad. It might. You might be worse off for reading a news article. I'm not saying it's over across the board bad to read news articles. I'm saying to act like you're reading. What I'm saying is read a fucking... If you think you can gather as much information from a three-page article as you can from a 300-page book, you wouldn't make that argument because no one would because it's ludicrous. So, yeah, I beseech you. I, I behoove you. Please read some books. If you if you are looking for recommendations, like I've given you recommendations, I've given you a lot of recommendations. If you don't want to read anything, if you if you don't want to read um, something that's nonfiction and really gonna give you anxiety and stress, here's how I would put it: If you really want to start understanding what I'm saying here, you should read any Chris Hedges book, literally anyone. I would just put an asterisk next to Empire of Illusion and America the Farewell Tour because that will really make you, that will fuck with you, that will disturb you. But again, this, in my opinion, makes them more worth reading. Um, Hate Inc. by Matt Taibbi. As I said, Taibbi's written other books. I'm sure they're very good. I've never read any of his other books. Um, if you don't, I mean, if you want like a fiction that thing that's not going to fuck with you, that then uh, read Game of Thrones. Love that. Fucking love that book. Oh, my God. Read Stephen King. Uh, Stephen King's ri- written so many good books. Just don't read a horror book because that will give you anxiety and 
it'll fuck with you a little bit. It'll disturb you. But there's there's some great Stephen King books. I read The Institution or The Institute recently. It's a great book. Slightly disturbing, but not really. Um, what else? Brave New World is something that you should definitely read because it's similar to 1984. And you will see a lot of parallels between our current predicament in American society and this book, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. I highly recommend that you read that. If you want to read nonfiction that's not heavy, then I would highly recommend you read Malcolm Gladwell, something by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, I don't know, dude. Like, whatever. But do you. But keep listening to the podcast, please. And I get back to it now. Because like I always say, when I go through these periods where I'm just gathering information, I'm just trying to learn, then I'm usually, um, will do fewer podcasts because I'm trying to just take it all in before I could just talk about it. So I'll start getting back to it. Um, you know, that's all I got for you. That's all I got for you. Just keep, keep listening. Give it a five-star review. If you haven't, if you look at the reviews, I either have mostly five-star reviews and then like five one-star reviews. So, you know, obviously things that I've said on the podcast, whether I'm making like a Holocaust joke or if I'm telling woke people that they're retarded or something like that. Obviously, these people take offense and then they go and they give me a one-star review. You'll also note if you look at the reviews that none of the one-star reviews have a written review. They just left a one-star review because they got offended or they're very easily um they're very easily upset by things they're very feminine some of them are very feminine men who reject all you know aspects of masculinity i don't know some of them are asians when i was talking shit about the chinese some of them are chinese people which i take back the bad things i said about the chinese because um i i have a I have a completely different opinion on what happened with COVID-19 and things of that nature. So I, I take back, I take it back. Chinese. I love you. You're good. You're good. In my book, you're good. Government questionable, but you as people, you're, you're, you're all right. You know, overall, some of you are probably horrible. I imagine. Um, but that's just a law of statistics, huh? Um, or is it the law of averages? Is that the law of averages? Whatever. Undoubtedly, there are Chinese people who are horrible people, but I, I'm willing to I'm willing to concede that probably most of them are, are just fine. They're just trying to trying to get by. Um, all right. So I love you and I'll, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye.